So Reasonable Doubt is the title of this evening's talk. Patrick James Whelan and the assassination of Thomas Darcy McGee. So, uh, as I think everyone in this room knows, 150 years ago this week, Darcy McGee, Canada's youngest and without question most intellectually gifted father of confederation, was shot through the back of the head on Spark Street, the first but not the last political assassination in this country. Almost immediately, the question of who pulled the trigger became a kind of political Rorschach test in which people from different traditions projected their own beliefs onto the event. So some Irish nationalists, for example, claimed that McGee had been shot by a mad Englishman named Dent who committed suicide the day after the assassination. Others said that the assassin was one of McGee's informers who feared that McGee was about to blow his cover. Still others speculated that he'd been killed by the jealous husband of a woman he had supposedly seduced. Many orange men, in contrast, were equally confident that McGee had been the victim of a widespread Fenian conspiracy, which encompassed the Clerkenwell explosions in London and the attempted assassination of the Duke of Edinburgh in Australia around the same time. In this city, the word on the street was that the assassination had been carried out, quote, by a man named Giroux, a low-down, contemptible thug who was paid to do the dirty work, unquote. And among the candidates for the man who ordered the hit was John Hearn, a leading Irish nationalist politician in Quebec City. He'd supported the Irish Republican Union's plans to invade Canada back in 1848. Several years after McGee's murder, Alexander Campbell, who was a Minister of Justice, heard the astounding news, as he put it, that Hearn, together with Francis McNamee, who was the founder of Fenianism in Montreal and possibly a government spy, had planned and paid for the assassination and had hired a, quote, repulsive-looking French-Canadian with no bridge to his nose, unquote, to do the job. Giroux. Um, another candidate was a man who paid a mysterious visit to the house of McGee's close friend, James Goodwin, on the night of the murder. Now, Goodwin regularly invited McGee back to his house after the parliamentary sessions and had arranged to meet him, as usual, on the night of the murder. But he was prevented from doing so by an unexpected visit from someone he hardly knew, who, quote, this is uh, Goodwin's own words, detained him with a long, rambling talk. The visitor was John O'Farrell, a Quebec lawyer, who had actually become part of the defense team for the man who was charged for the crime, the man who was found guilty and subsequently executed, Patrick James Whelan. Now, whatever you make of this, one recurring theme runs through the popular tradition. Whelan may have been a blatherskite, as Charles Murphy put it, but he was also an innocent victim of a rush to judgment, a scapegoat to satisfy the lust for revenge. Protestant sentiment here, JLP O'Hanley, Ottawa three weeks after the assassination. Protestant sentiment here is not actuated by a laudable desire of punishing the guilty and protecting the innocent. There is no aim at discriminating between guilt and innocence. The universal themes are 
hang 99 out of every 100 of the bloody Irish papists and it's pretty safe to conclude that the right one will be of the number string them up first and try them afterwards unquote now the question of whether or not Whelan was a scapegoat continues to be discussed and debated and a degree of doubt will always exist the question is does it amount to reasonable doubt so what I'm going to do this evening is lay out the case for and against Whelan's Whelan's guilt and I'm going to leave it up to you to decide I'm going to play the role of the judge although you'll be relieved to hear I will not follow in Judge William Buell Richards' footsteps and give you a six-hour summation of the trial evidence. (laughs) He'll be seven. (laughs) Nor will I invite the Prime Minister to join me at the bench, as Judge Richards invited John A. MacDonald to sit on the bench with him during the trial. And if I play the judge, you will play the jury. Although I note that some of you are of the female persuasion, in which case you would not have been eligible to serve on the jury. You'd have to wait until 1964 for that. And even then, you had to be married. (laughs) And I fear that some of you may be of the Roman Catholic persuasion in which case you would not have been selected as a juror. The Crown Council used peremptory challenges in the news recently to ensure that no Catholics were on the jury. When asked why he did so, he said that it was because of the, quote, well-known sympathy on the part of many Roman Catholics in this neighbourhood with Whelan, unquote. You might be interested to know that the Crown Council himself was a Catholic. James O'Reilly from County Mayo. The case he built up against Whelan was impressive. Evidence found in Whelan's room suggested that he was Athenian, or at the very least, Athenian sympathiser. Membership cards of several Irish clubs that contain significant numbers of Athenians. Several copies of the same issue of the pro-invasion Fenian newspaper, the Irish American. The pro-invasion Fenian newspaper, the Irish American. He had several issues of it indicating that he was one of his distributors, not just a casual reader. They also found a death threat that had been composed for the previous Valentine's Day. It was a drawing of a man hanging on a log with the verse, This is a shadow of what really should be of all unworthy beings such as thee. A log of wood and a bit of twine will suit you better than me for a Valentine. But it was clearly never sent. More importantly, though, the police recovered a Smith & Wesson revolver, which looked like it had recently been fired, very recently. This discovery was of crucial importance in the trial, and indeed of crucial importance in almost everything that followed. The detective who found the gun, Edward O'Neill, another Irishman, reported that five of the cartridges had been in the gun for a long time 
But the sixth, O'Neill said, had every appearance of having been recently put in. Not only that, but Wayland had pressed fresh grease on top of each ball in the gun. It appeared to have been done, O'Neill said, to avoid suspicion of the revolver being just lately discharged. Whelan had also cleaned the inside of the barrel, but, O'Neill again, the muzzle showed fresh powder as if it had been recently fired off. When asked how long such a powder mark would remain in the muzzle, O'Neill replied that it would, quote, last perhaps two days after the discharge, and he had examined the gun less than 24 hours after the murder. This becomes crucial to everything that follows O'Neill's evidence about the gun. So O'Reilly could draw on what was found in Whelan's room in the Ottawa Hotel, run by another Irishman, Michael Stars, and to draw on the condition of the gun. And O'Reilly could also draw on the evidence that came out in the police magistrate's inquiry. This was held to see whether the case should go to trial. It was held immediately after the murder. It was standard procedure. And at the police magistrate's inquiry, Mrs. Trotter, McGee's landlady, McGee's landlady excuse me, testified that Whelan had made two late-night visits to her boarding house shortly before the assassination. The parliamentary staff reported that on the night of the murder, Whelan had looked restless, nervous and anxious. He'd left Parliament as it was closing and he was walking towards Spark Street. Alec Turner, who had lodged with Whelan the previous summer in Montreal, testified that Whelan was Athenian, had repeatedly threatened to kill McGee and had gone to McGee's house twice with that purpose in mind. This fitted with the testimony of John Joseph McGee, Darcy's half-brother, who said that Whelan and another man had visited their house between one o'clock and two o'clock in the morning of New Year's night, 1868. And Whelan had introduced himself not as Patrick James Whelan, but as Smith of the Grand Trunk, and said that he'd come to warn McGee of an attack on his house that would be carried out later that night. His house was going to be burned down later that night. McGee gave him a note to send to the police. But there were problems with his story, with Whelan's story, because why, if he wanted, if he really wanted to help McGee, why did he A, lie about his name, and B, why did he not deliver McGee's note to the police until long after the supposed danger had passed? This didn't add up. And then another witness came forward to say that on April the 1st, this is the Wednesday before the murder, he'd seen Whelan bring a revolver into the parliamentary gallery and Whelan had been behaving in an agitated manner. Now this was not normal practice to bring guns into the parliamentary gallery, though as you can tell security was not exactly tight. It also transpired that three years earlier, and I find this particularly interesting, in any putative connection between Whelan and the Fenian Brotherhood, three years earlier Whelan had been arrested in Quebec City for attempting to swear a soldier into the Fenian Brotherhood and he was using the pseudonym of James Sullivan, Sullivan being his mother's maiden name. Now he'd been acquitted 
but a cloud of suspicion hung over his head because it was notoriously difficult to convict anyone for suborning soldiers because you needed two witnesses. And knowing this, the Fenians usually approached potential recruits in the army one at a time. In fact, Whelan's brother, Joseph Whelan, was doing this in his pub in Marlborough Street in Dublin on a regular basis, just as an aside, out of interest. He was taking soldiers in under the orders of John Devoy, Fenian leader. He was taking soldiers into his back room one at a time and swearing them into the Fenian Brotherhood. So, um, so the acquittal of Whelan, Quebec City, didn't necessarily mean that he was not guilty. It just meant there wasn't enough evidence to uh, nail him, or you could see it that way. And in the Quebec case, in that case, only one soldier testified against Whelan, and that's not enough, one person's word against another. So putting all this together, Whelan, it seemed clear, was a Fenian who had repeatedly threatened to kill McGee, who had been stalking McGee, who had carried his gun into Parliament, had been seen heading towards the place where McGee had been killed, and had fired his gun around the time that McGee was shot. And all of this is established before the trial takes place. And then, just when it seems that it couldn't get any worse, three developments occurred that appeared to shatter any remaining responsibility, any remaining possibility that Whelan might have been innocent. Three new developments. The first, police picked up rumours that a French-Canadian lumberjack, Jean-Baptiste Lacroix, had been boasting or talking about witnessing the murder. He'd been walking along Spark Street, he was saying, early in the morning of April the 7th. He'd seen the shooting. So the police tracked him down. Now note that, it was the police who went to him, he didn't come to them. They tracked him down, they brought him in for questioning. And he said that he'd seen a man trying to open the door of a house when someone came up from behind, circled from behind, and shot him in the back of the head. At a subsequent identity parade, he picked out Whelan as the shooter, saying that he, quote, recognized him by his size and way of acting. Note those words, because I'm going to come back to them. Recognized him by his size and his way of acting. The second development came from the Ottawa jail cells, where the governor, Alexander Powell, had heard Whelan when we were speaking with his fellow prisoners while the police magistrate's inquiry was going on. He heard Whelan uh, speaking in Irish with his fellow prisoners. Uh, and Alexander Powell had no idea what he was saying. But Whelan broke into a song in the English language. It was, it was with the greatest of glee, the words went, according to Alexander Powell. It was with the greatest of glee I heard of the death of the bloody traitor Darcy McGee, Darcy McGee. So, Alexander Powell immediately brought in an Irish-speaking detective from Montreal, Andrew Cullen, originally Cullenan, from County Clare, to eavesdrop on the prisoners. What Cullen heard was explosive. The night after Alec Turner had testified that Whelan had repeatedly threatened McGee, Whelan was in the cell talking with his fellow prisoner John Doyle. John Doyle said to him, according to Cullen, Jim, I'm sorry for you. The whole world will know it. According to Cullen, Whelan replied, Yep, I'm a great fella. I shot that fella. I shot the bugger like a dog. I'm a great fella. My name will go down to posterity. 
Development two. The third development came two weeks later. So we have Lacroix, we have Cullen's eyewitness testimony, we have uh, Cullen's ear witness testimony, and now we have Reuben Wade. Who is he? He's an Englishman, he's a detective with the Grand Trunk Railway, and he comes forward and he says that he has overheard Whelan and some friends in a Montreal grog shop plotting to assassinate McGee just before New Year's Night in 1868. Now you might recall, New Year's Night 1868 was the time that Whelan paid that mysterious nocturnal visit to McGee's house. So now, along with Whelan's threats, his association with Fenianism, his late night visit to McGee's house, his behaviour before the assassination, the police evidence that his gun had been fired within two days of the, uh, before his arrest, O'Reilly now had the eyewitness testimony of Lacroix, the jailhouse confession overheard by Cullen, and the evidence from Wade that Whelan was the hitman in a Montreal Fenian plot to assassinate McGee. The case for the prosecution was formidable. If Whelan was to have any chance of being found not guilty, he would need the best lawyer in the country. And that is exactly what he got. John Hilliard Cameron, the Grand Master of the Orange Order. (laughs) Consider this. We have an Irish Catholic prosecutor who blocked his co-religionists from serving on the jury versus a conservative orange man whose defense of Wayland was capped off by what some considered to be the most brilliant speech ever delivered in a Canadian court. Who says Canadian history is dull? (laughs) Cameron's first task is to undermine the credibility of the only apparent eyewitness to the assassination, Jean-Baptiste Lacroix. Now, Cameron's co-counsel, John O'Farrell, remember John O'Farrell, the ultra-Irish nationalist who would himself be suspected, suspected of involvement in the murder? John O'Farrell rounded up seven witnesses, some of whom he paid, to testify that Lacroix was a liar, a thief, and a boaster. Upon further investigation, Cameron's team discovered that the identity parade in which Lacroix picked out Whelan had actually been fixed. The first time around, Lacroix had not been able to identify Whelan. So the sheriff, William Powell, brother of Alexander Powell, the governor of the jail, got Whelan to change into the clothes, took him out of the line, got him to change into the clothes he'd been wearing on the night of the murder, and tried again. No surprise, Lacroix picked him out the second time around. Although even then, he could not, quote, swear for certain that he is the person. Not only that, but Lacroix's story collapsed under cross-examination. Lacroix said that the killer, Whelan, was a short man and the victim, McGee, was a taller man. He also said that the victim was wearing a black beaver hat. But Whelan was taller than McGee and McGee had been wearing a white hat. 
So Cameron had not only discredited Lacroix's testimony, but he'd also demonstrated that the sheriff had rigged the evidence against Whelan. It's a very impressive start to the uh, case for the defence. Next up, and this is classic Cameron, he went every time, I suppose as a, as, a, as a lawyer, a very good lawyer, every time he went for the weakest link. Next up was Reuben Wade, the detective who claimed to have overheard Whalen and others plotting in that Montreal grog shop to assassinate McGee. As he had done with Lacroix, John O'Farrell found witnesses, this time he rounded up five of them who swore that Whelan was actually in Ottawa when this conversation in Montreal supposedly happened. Now, not all of these witnesses were credible, and the prosecution implied that they were fellow Fenians protecting one of their own. And that may have been true, but then again, Wade's story was even less credible. Do you think, asked Cameron, do you think that men engaged in a conspiracy, men engaged in an act of so daring a character as taking away the life of the foremost man in the land, would meet together in a room 16 by 18 and speak about the plot in the presence of a stranger who had nothing to do with them, whom they never saw before, and speak too so that he should overhear every word he said? On the testimony of Reuben Wade, not a particle of reliance can be placed. Quote, unquote. So, Cameron has neatly and effectively dispatched Lacroix and Wade. Next up is Turner, Whelan's former lodger, who had testified that Whelan had repeatedly threatened to assassinate McGee. Again, O'Farrell got to work, this time digging up six witnesses. I count 18 witnesses altogether he's dug up by this time. All of whom swore that Turner was lying for the reward money. I should point out here, I should add that Turner was working in the same tailor's shop as uh, Whelan. Peter Eagleson's tailor shop. Um, and we know from secret police reports uh, that, it was, that Peter Eagleson was a leading Ottawa Fenian. There's no question of this. There's solid evidence for this. Um, and the implication of the prosecution was that these witnesses, all swearing that Turner was lying for reward money, were themselves lying to protect a fellow Fenian. So uh, take that as you will. All the witnesses had said pretty much the same thing. They all had variations on the same theme. When Turner heard that the government was offering John Doyle, the cellmate, Wheeler's cellmate, $16,000, an astonishing amount of money, for information against Whelan, Turner said, according to the witnesses, I would swear my own grandfather's life away for half that amount. <laughs> but Turner in the witness box proves to be a very tough nut to crack. Cameron, though, was able to point to discrepancies, which I'm not going to get into because it would be too detailed, but suffice it to say there were discrepancies between Turner's testimony at the police magistrate's inquiry and his testimony at the trial. The discrepancies demonstrated, and that's the right word, they di didn't indicate, they demonstrated that Turner had embroidered his testimony at the trial in the light of evidence that came out after he had spoken at the police magistrate's inquiry. And in pointing this out, Cameron punched a large hole through Turner's credibility. But Cameron had to take account of two other witnesses. The names were Joseph Faulkner and James Inglis, who testified that the previous summer during a, a hard-fought, close-fought, bitterly-fought election campaign in Montreal, 
Whelan had described McGee as a traitor who deserved to be shot and had said that he, Whelan, was willing to do it if nobody else would. And in this case, there, was, there were no witnesses brought up to say they were lying for the reward money. Uh, Cameron had nothing to say against this, except that, well, people said such things in the heat of the moment, but they didn't really mean them. There's an election campaign going on. People speak like that. Don't read too much into it. This, in my view, was not exactly convincing. Nor, for that matter, was Cameron's attempt to argue that Whelan had really come to McGee's house that night, New Year's night, to warn of an arson, arson attack, uh, that was what Whelan was really doing. He'd come to warn McGee that his house was going to be burnt down. But still the question remained, if that was true, why did Whelan delay telling the police until the supposed threat had passed? And that question Cameron could not answer. Cameron also had to confront the testimony of the parliamentary staff about Whelan's behaviour on the night of the murder. Now, here we need to know that a messenger, Edward Storr, no relation to the Michael Starr of the hotel, Storr, noted in his diary, and he wrote this when he went home, knowing nothing about the assassination, that Whelan had been restless that night and had pointed his finger in a threatening manner at McGee during McGee's speech. A doorkeeper, William Graham, said that Whelan only visited the house when McGee was speaking, a pattern emerging. Cameron countered Storr's testimony, the restless Whelan, with the uh, full bladder theory. Um, uh, Whelan had a bladder problem, that's why he was restless. He kept going back and forth to the toilets, that was the, uh, uh, the argument uh, there. And as for the pointing uh, the finger at McGee, uh, according to Storr uh, in his diary, uh, uh, when, when McGee came to a part of the speech um, talking about hitting somebody below the belt, a colleague of his, he said, had been hit below the belt. Apparently, Whelan, uh, according to the store, leant forward, bar baring his teeth and pointing at him like that. Well, uh, uh, Cameron said actually um, Whelan could have been pointing at anyone, uh, so you couldn't, shouldn't read too much into that. And again, I don't find that uh, particularly convincing. But Cameron scored a major point against William Graham, uh, the man who said that Whelan only visited the house when, uh, w when McGee was speaking. Cameron scored a major point against Graham because Cameron demonstrated that Graham had changed his testimony at the trial to make it fit with the description that Lacroix had given of Whelan's clothing that night. So the, he was discredited because of that. Graham was clearly rigging the evidence against Whelan, just as the sheriff had rigged the identity parade, and as Turner may have rigged his testimony for the reward money. On the other hand, Storr's testimony had not effectively been challenged, and neither of that had the witnesses uh, who'd seen Whelan carry a gun into the house five nights before the murder, and who saw him walk towards Spark Street when the parliamentary session finished on the night of the murder. So this left two critical elements, the toughest nuts to crack, if you like, in the case for the prosecution. The jailhouse confession that Detective Cullen had overheard. How do you get around that? And the evidence that Whelan's gun had been fired around the time that McGee was shot. The jailhouse confession was a huge obstacle, made even bigger by the fact that Cullen was by all accounts an impressive witness whose testimony could not be shaken. It was also buttressed by that of a turnkey in the prison, John Little, who reported that Whelan told his fellow prisoner John Doyle, it's true that there were three of us, but I was alone when he was murdered. 
So what to do in the face of such evidence? Cameron actually turned it on its head, arguing that the placement of Cullen in the cell to eavesdrop actually revealed the weakness of the Crown's case. Because if the Crown had strong evidence against the prisoner, they would not have had to resort to such tactics. Eavesdropping. Cameron could not come right out and suggest that Cullen was lying to secure a conviction, but he did suggest that Cullen had perverted the meaning of Whelan's words. I'm a great fellow. I shot that bugger. My name will go down to posterity. Far from admitting guilt, Cameron said, Whelan was simply repeating words that Alec Turner had used against him in the police magistrate's inquiry and making a sarcastic comment about those words. Cameron hoped that Cullen's error, thinking that Whelan was serious, had been the result, quote, of misadvertence alone, thus subtly suggesting that it could have been the result of something less innocent. It's also interesting that the Crown Counsel, James O'Reilly, picked up that inference and addressed it in his closing speech to the jury. There was absolutely no reason, O'Reilly argued, absolutely no reason to think that Cullen was a perjured witness. Such a thing, he said, was unthinkable. The same applied to John Little's testimony. But... O'Reilly continued, if Whelan was found guilty on their evidence, and if in fact they had been lying, turning to the jury, he said, the blood of the prisoner would be upon their heads, not yours. Finally, the gun. Detective O'Neill had testified that the fatal bullet was consistent with those in the cartridge of Whelan's gun and that the gun had been fired around the time of the assassination. On the first point, Cameron established that the bullet could have been fired by any Smith and Wesson, and that such guns and such bullets were commonplace after the Civil War. No big deal. Second point, Cameron brought in a witness whose testimony provided a completely different explanation for the condition of the gun. Her name was Euphemie La France, she was a cleaner at the hotel where Whelan had been staying. On February the 19th, while cleaning Whelan's room, she found his gun between, her words, between the mattress and the feather bed. The man slept with his gun. And she accidentally discharged it, leaving powder burns on her arm. There was no doubt that she was telling the truth. Sometimes I feel she was the only person at the trial who was telling the truth. <laughs> A doctor at the hospital confirmed that he had treated her that morning. So here then was a perfectly innocent explanation for the condition of the cartridges in the cylinder. Five of them had indeed been in there for a long time, while the six had been put in just before the assassination to replace the bullet that Euphemie La France had accidentally fired. O'Neill, Cameron argued, O'Neill had mistaken the powder in the muzzle as coming from a recent firing, when in fact it came from Euphemie Lafrance's accident some six weeks earlier. Just as Detective Cullen had heard what he wanted to hear, O'Neill had seen what he wanted to see. O'Neill's testimony was one of the hinges on which everything turned. 
According to him, the powder in the barrel of the gun indicated that it had been fired not only by Euphemie La France on February the 19th, but also by Whelan himself on April 5th or 6th. If O'Neill had got it wrong, there was no one with the knowledge or ability to contradict him. And if O'Neill had got it right, there was forensic evidence that Cameron and his team simply could not get around. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I leave it in your hands to assess whether justice had been served when Whelan was found guilty. Of course, there are things we'll never know, um, which is the problem with modern versions of trials that happened in the past, distant past. We cannot tell from the body language and the tone of voice which witnesses had most credibility, or even if those with the most credibility were actually telling the truth. As the judge said, if you believe Cullen's evidence, it was, quote, almost conclusive against the prisoner. If you believe Turner's evidence, the judge continued, it is most damaging to the prisoner. If you believe Edward Storr's diary entry, and there's no reason why you wouldn't, quote, it seems to point conclusively at the prisoner. If you believe the prosecution's argument, I love this, that a simple-minded Frenchman, such as Lacroix, could never have been sophisticated enough to have fabricated the story he told in court. <laughs> Indeed. You might well decide that he was telling the truth, even if he got some of the details wrong. If you believe that the gun had been fired around the time of the murder, if you believe the unchallenged testimony from Faulkner and Inglis about Whelan's threats to kill McGee, if you believe John Joseph McGee's testimony about the night Whelan knocked on his brother's door, if, 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 if. And then the closing words of his address to the jury. Don't stretch your imaginations, but as twelve honest men, have the reasonable doubt. Don't trifle with your consciences or seek for doubts where there are none. Society looks to you for justice. No matter what the consequences, you are bound to declare fearlessly of the prisoner guilty or not guilty of the heinous crime with which he is charged. There are also things that I have not told you. Things that transpired after the trial including what Whelan said just before his execution and what we know about the reasons for the jury's verdict. But they're going to have to wait for the question and answer session <laughs> after you've reached your own verdict. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm very happy to entertain questions. I'm not sure I can answer them. Uh, you, Jeff, and, yes, you, you go first. Yeah. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, so if, if, if Whalen was indeed Athenian or Athenian sympathizer, um, he would have been part. He would have been in. Um, uh, he would have been part of a very large company of people who would have been very happy to see McGee dead. McGee was um, was widely and deeply hated by the Athenians. Um, 
partly because he had once been a Fenian in all but name himself. He was a Fenian before the Fenian Brotherhood was founded. In 1848-49, he led uh, one of the key leaders of the Young Ireland Rebellion. Um, And he was, he was about as radical as you get in 48 and 49. He, he wanted uh, complete abolition of uh, landlordism, an Irish republic. Um, uh, he was prepared to, to work with uh, agrarian secret societies. Uh, he was trying to organize a guerrilla campaign against the British army uh, in counties Donegal and Sligo. Um, when he came to the United States as, a, as an exile, he described himself proudly as a traitor to the British government. Uh, he also advocated uh, an Irish led revolution in Canada. Canada needs a revolution or it needs nothing, he wrote. So he'd been very, he'd been uh, on the cutting edge of, uh, of revolutionary Irish nationalism. For reasons that I won't go into, uh, McGee had, uh, had changed his views and, uh, and was now a liberal conservative member of, uh, of parliament, a cabinet minister, not actually when he was shot, but beforehand. Um, and um, he was regarded as the archetypal traitor, someone who had sold out his country, Ireland, not Canada, uh, for the sake of uh, ambition and material gain. Um, and McGee had been absolutely uncompromising in, in his attacks on the Fenian Brotherhood. Uh, McGee had received so many death threats that he actually, unfortunately, it's lost, but we know he had a scrapbook. He, put them, he had kept a scrapbook of all the death threats he received. Um, so he was, if you like, the Emmanuel Goldstein of, uh, uh, of uh, Irish, Irish-American, Irish-Canadian Fenians. So if Whelan was... This is why, this is why the question of Whelan's uh, uh, possible Fenianism or Fenian sympathies becomes so important. Uh, it would give motivation. But I should also add, this was never raised in the trial. The question of, of Whelan's pol- political beliefs was never explicitly raised in the trial. On one occasion, James O'Reilly tried to, to do it, uh, John Hilliard Cameron leapt to his feet and objected that the, prison, that the prisoner's political opinions had nothing to do with his case and the judge uh, accepted the objection. So that is often said, well, Fenianism was never mentioned in the trial. There's a good reason for that. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. There's a question here and then I'll get you some... Well, yeah. Yes. Yep. Oh, was there ever any attempt by forensics to look for that bullet in the, in the room or to verify the statement that... No, no. The, ver- the verification came from her doctor, uh, who said that she visited him that day with powder burns from a gun that she fired off in the hotel accidentally. So, yeah. So the question here. So I get you a note. Uh, yes. Both the soldiers, my family and Cameron. Okay. You know whether Wayland was guilty or not. I can say this, with 12 orange but not the jury, he didn't have it. <laughs> well, actually, they weren't all orange men. I need to, need to uh, clarify that. They were all Protestants. You couldn't be your own Catholic conservative, I could you couldn't. But saying, saying members of the jury were all orange men is a bit like saying all Catholics are Fenians. It's not, it wasn't the case. But sir, the justice yes. system is supposed to be of your peers. 
Indeed. Oh yeah, this is a whole issue with the Colton Bushy case right now and, and peremptory challenges. Uh, absolutely. And, and interestingly, at the time, if you, if you see how um, uh, advanced Irish nationalist opinion viewed the trial, one of the most interesting things is nobody cared about John A. MacDonald sitting next to the judge. In fact, some Irish nationalists thought it was a good thing because MacDonald was a moderating force. I know that sounds strange, but that's, that's the truth of the matter. That, that, that view was out there. What they did, what really exercised and incensed them, was what I suspect exercises and incenses you, that no Catholics were allowed to sit on the jury. And it was an Irish Catholic who made that happen. Another traitor, James O'Reilly. You know. So that was, that was where the, uh, the focus focus was um, uh, at the time. So, so I, I would say that your position has a very, very long pedigree, and there's good reason for it. I mean, the whole, the whole question of peremptory challenges um, uh, is fraught with difficulty. They're being uh, removed in this country, they were removed in Britain uh, back in 1988, I think. So, yes? I just point out that the peremptory challenge is available to both. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Whether you're the defense lawyer or the prosecution, you have the same ability to object to it. So you yes. might be able to complain more about the jury pool, yes. but the peremptory challenge yes. is not a problem. Uh, yeah. the jury, and the jury pool was heavily Protestant as well, actually. But, but it wasn't entirely Protestant. Well, obviously, otherwise it wouldn't have been the issue around peremptory challenges. Uh, but you're quite right. Yes, it works both ways. And, and the, question that, the question of pool is actually, um, a, a, as you suggest, very important. And in trials of Fenians in Ireland, um, uh, it, it changed. Catholics were, were included in the pool much more, but when John Mitchell was tried in 1848 and sentenced to 14 years uh, for a treason felony, um, the, um, uh, the authorities made sure that the entire pool was Protestant. Uh, which is, they, did, they didn't do that after John Mitchell, as far as I recall. So, as a question here, now I'll get you, sir. Yes. Hi, um, always astounded by the astonishing scholarship that you have done oh, thank you. Uh, on Darcy McGee. Uh, could you tell us more about your views on the process and the due process? And you mentioned the role of John A. MacDonald. Mm -hmm. And there's also the question of the appeals yeah. and how the appeals work. And um, basically, how would the process seen through the lens of today's judicial systems and practices? compare yeah. with, with... Oh, uh, uh, there, would have been a re there would have been a retrial. No question about that. There would have been a retrial um, uh, on various grounds. John A. Macdonald's presence next to the judge alone would be grounds for a, a retrial. Um, now, uh, I'll come back to that point in a moment um, uh, because it, it also suggests something about the history of jurisprudence um, that I'm no expert on, but I can it will stop me from speculating a bit. Um, uh, but uh, other factors, the appeals process, um, I mean, William uh, Buell Richards, the judge, um, had the casting vote in two um, uh, stages of appeal. In both cases, the other judges were split 50-50, and he uh, supported his own decisions. Um, this, this, is, this, would, this would never, I mean, this is a clear, by today's standards, a clear conflict of interest. So if you want to judge the trial by the standards of 2018, um, yeah, uh, uh, a retrial, definitely. Judged by the standards of the day, though, a different picture emerges. Uh, uh, I mean, 
you can, you can, and, and there's no reason why you should not uh, 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 criticise uh, the fact that um, no Catholics were on the jury. But that was within that was within the rules of the game at the time, um, and. Uh, you can raise a lot of questions about the nature of the evidence, and I want to come back to that in a moment. But on John A. MacDonald, um, sitting next to the judge, I was fascinated when I, when I was reading newspapers. I went through the Irish Canadian, which is a Athenian newspaper in all but name. I went through the Irish American and the Irish Citizen and these Athenian uh, uh, newspapers in the States, and no one was complaining about it. So I, and one of the advantages of getting, uh, getting grant money from time to time is that you can, you can uh, hire graduate students to do a lot of this legwork. So I hired a graduate student and said, I want you to find out when this became an issue. Well, this was like, it was an, imp- it was an impossible task. It was like looking for needles in haystacks, really. Um, when, when, when was this actually raised? Well, it's a bit easier now with, in, with uh, word finders and indexes. The earliest example she found of this being an issue was 1934. Now, that's not to say that everything changed in 1934, but it is to say that probably in 1920s, uh, 1930s, this, this, this whole at, judicial attitudes were changing. There's one other thing I want to point to, and that's the nature of, it, of the evidence, because um, I mean, there's a, there, there is a lot of evidence that points at, at Whelan, no question. But there's also um, uh, a lot of evidence that evidence was cooked. Now, um, and we know about the Birmingham Six, right? and maybe not everyone here knows about the Birmingham Six, but there were six men who were uh, convicted of uh, putting a bomb in a Birmingham pub, and, um, and the police found that uh, the forensic reports indicated that they had gelignite all over their hands. And, and as soon as that happened, um, the uh, police uh, beat them up badly and beat confessions out of them. They actually showed up in court uh, black and blue. And just as Judge William Buell Richards said it was unthinkable that Cullen was lying, um, the, uh, the Lord Chief Justice said it was unthinkable that the police had beaten this man up. Really? Uh, this does not go down well with Irish audiences. <laughs> um, and, but, but, but it's pretty clear that the police knew, quote-unquote, that they had the right people because the forensic evidence demonstrated it. Many years later it came out that uh, what seemed like gelignite on their fingers was actually varnish from the railway, railway bar where they'd been playing cards. They got the varnish all over their fingers. Which is why I come back to O'Neill, because if you look at, the, uh, if you look at Edward O'Neill's um, uh, testimony uh, in the police magistrate's inquiry that uh, this gun had been fired within 48 hours of the assassination. And you combine that with the news that came out about threats within threats on McGee and, uh, and, and you combine that with what they found in this room um, uh, the, the Irish American newspapers and the membership of all the and, and the death threat and, uh, and so on um, you can make this case. You can say that uh, the authorities, quote, knew, unquote, that Waylon was guilty. And knowing he was guilty, they're going to make damn sure that uh, this man was not going to get away with it. So you rig an identity parade. So William Graham changes his testimony. So Alec Turner changes his testimony. Um, uh, and Cullen uh, makes up uh, a story about a confession 
uh, you can make that case. And so it's a strong case to make. You can make counter, equally strong counter cases just to confuse matters, but, but that, that, that's one possibility. Another possibility um, is, uh, well, look, I want to read you something. Um, I, I don't want to keep you, I know I'm standing between you and wine, and it's a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous position to be in. And I, I, I apologize pro- profusely for this, but I'm going to, get, I'm going to give you a hunch about, about another scenario, uh, which does actually find Waylon guilty, but as an accessory, not as the assassin. This is a letter written by John A. MacDonald, to James O'Reilly, the day after Whelan is executed, February the 12th, 1869. Very, very interesting. My dear O'Reilly, you will see by the papers that Whelan said nothing on the scaffold. That's not actually true. He said, God save Ireland, which may seem innocuous now, maybe is, but in 1868-69, it was a Fenian rallying, rallying cry, so that may have been a signal he was sending. Anyway, he left a short paper stating that neither Doyle nor Buckley participated in the murder, which he signed before O'Gara and Lees. O'Gara was a police magistrate, Lees was a Crown solicitor. In conversation with them, he freely admitted his presence at the murder, as he did to Goodwin, um, and as on several occasions to the sheriff and governor of the jail. But he always denied that he fired the shot. I am satisfied that he did fire the shot, and that that fact is the reason that he did not offer to turn Queen's evidence. I attach no importance to the written statement, the one that exonerated Buckley and Doyle. Uh, It has evidently been dictated by some superstitious feeling uh, that as he had uh, done away with one life, he would uh, make amends by endeavouring to save two. The body was to have been given up to Mrs. Whelan, But information uh, having arrived that there was going to be a great Fenian demonstration over the corpse at Montreal on its arrival, uh, which would uh, inevitably lead to bloodshed, um, it has, I believe, been buried within the precincts of the prison, the ground having been blessed and uh, Christian funeral given, attended by the clergyman who was with him at the last. This was the arrangement last night when I went to bed, and I presume it was carried out this morning. P.S. Since writing the above, I found that the priest was afraid to come to the funeral uh, and Powell, the governor, um, uh, and Powell um, has buried him without the prayers of the church. I suppose after the excitement is over, um, he will be um, uh, reinterred and consecrated. Uh, it took almost 150 years for that to happen. But isn't that interesting? Now, so what? So here's the thing. I know from I, I think I think well, any sense the beginning with I know is a dangerous one. But um, there's there is a lot of evidence to suggest that Wayland's speech from the dock, which surprised everybody, um, and a letter he wrote to Macdonald uh, between the time that the uh, judge finished his summation and the jury delivered its verdict, and they're very powerful letters. Um, uh, but I, I know, no matter how powerful they are, I know that there are some things in those letters that are untrue. They can be checked against our other evidence. You, you can know this. You can check it against really solid evidence. But this constant, I did not kill McGee. One occasion, um, 
Mary, he was told, Mary McGee, McGee's wife, uh, forgives you, which I don't think she actually did, actually. She died a few years later, and she died, died a very bitter woman. Uh, um, but Mary McGee forgives you. Tell Mrs. McGee she has nothing to, give, for, to forgive me for, for I did not shoot her husband. Uh, he told his wife, uh, Bridget Whalen, um, that he knew who killed McGee, I have it here and they will not take it from me. I will not be a Corridan or a Massey or a Nagel. They were notorious informers in the 1860s. And I wonder, I just, I just uh, throw this out as a possibility because it could be nothing more. Um, uh, and there is indeed reasonable doubt about this hypothesis too. But I, I think about this pattern of Whelan, uh, if you believe some of the testimony, repeatedly going to McGee's house but never actually shooting McGee, um, of going that New Year's night uh, where, he, where John Joseph McGee, I only gave you the tip of the iceberg there, John Joseph McGee was really scared and, and, and Whelan was locked in a room um, and watched closely uh, while he gave the note to Darcy McGee. Um, that, that maybe um, Whelan had gone there to assassinate McGee and bottled out. And here's the possibility that he was with, when he was, when he was um, uh, in the parliamentary gallery that night, he was with a man named James Kinsler. And uh, James Kinsler, uh, at one stage, patted his breast pocket uh, when McGee was speaking, according to Storr, uh, his testimony, and Whelan test, uh, pressed, patted his own breast pocket, and they looked at McGee and they nodded. Okay, so this is a rather threatening behavior, perhaps. Um, and uh, here's a possibility, then, that, that, that Kinsler leaves first, um, Whelan says, says to him, they make an arrangement, I will tell you when McGee is leaving. Whelan walks to Spark Street, meets up with, um, with Kinsler, and McGee is walking down the street, and Whelan bottles out yet again, and Kinsler says, give me that gun, and takes it and shoots McGee. It does fit with, I was there when McGee was shot, I know who shot McGee, um, I will never tell who shot McGee, and it fits with the forensic evidence as well. It's one possibility, but uh, I don't want to leave you by demolishing some myths and giving you another one. I just raise it as a possibility. Yes. Yes. Possibly, except he saw one person, not two. So yeah. Yes. David, how long did the jury take to come to Not long. About three hours. Yeah, three or four hours, uh, memory serves. So that, that day was a hell of a day. Uh, yeah, you started off in the morning. I just, you, may, you may be suffering through my talk, but I'd like you to think about how much the jury suffered. Um, they had James O'Reilly's speech that, uh, well, actually Cameron's speech first, it was about three hours. James O'Reilly's speech, which lasted two and a half hours. And then you had Judge William Buell Richard's speech, which lasted six hours. And then they had three hours to discuss it, and they reached their verdict. They're uh, not long. Not long. Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, anyone still asked a question? I'll, I'll, yes, yes, sir. Uh, Johnny McDonald uh, hears from Whelan that Whelan is going to leave the country. And uh, the Confederation was already in place. Yes, at the indeed. Time mm-hmm. Of the assassination. Right? And the trial took place how long after the death? Now, that's, a, that's also a, a very good question, um, because, uh, for, to, answer, to give you this, the simple answer, which is, 
academics don't normally do. Um, he's assassinated um, in, uh, on April the 7th. The trial takes place September. Um, and so that's the period. But I just want to say here, MacDonald wanted the trial to be held as soon as possible after the assassination. Not because uh, of a rush to judgment, but because witnesses were being threatened and intimidated. Alec Turner, there was an attempt to kill Alec Turner. You might remember the quotation Whelan saying in prison, I wouldn't give sixpence for his carcass. Well, someone tried to shoot Alec Turner in a nightclub. Turner carried a gun with him and protected himself against that. Um, other witnesses were beaten up. Um, so knowing this, um, MacDonald uh, was afraid that intimidation of witnesses would become so severe that there'd be no witnesses left. But um, uh, John Stanfield MacDonald, uh, uh, Ontario, uh, refused to do that. He said, we must not, under no circumstances must we rush this. Everything has to be taken slowly. So there's a major difference between the two McDonald's. Uh, but anyway, that's, 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 but go on, I know you've got to follow up. Yeah. Because uh, I remember reading, and it could well have come from one of your words, um, that McDonald had a very political reason to be in that courthouse. Mm-hmm. to get a conviction uh, for the very political reason of that the confederation was still very young there were still actually some fathers of confederation who were kind of anti-confederation uh, you know for instance PEI came three years later and that MacDonald wanted to assert the legal authority in that court and prove to the people that this government is determined and gets things done Yeah, um, you didn't read that from me. Um, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting hypothesis. It, there may, it may be true, but there's no evidence that I've seen in MacDonald's own uh, writings. I've read everything MacDonald's written, of course, the stuff that you don't put down on paper as well. <laughs> uh, but all I can say is, um, uh, to me, it's not a compelling enough reason, and I find no evidence there. But that's not to say that, that that hypothesis is wrong. It's just that I, um, uh, there's nothing in, in any of MacDonald's writings. I mean, you find this, this kind of thing over and over again. I mentioned earlier Francis Bernard McNamee, the founder of Fenianism in Montreal, may have been a government spy. He may have been working for MacDonald uh, or McGee or Cartier. Most likely Cartier was working for anybody. Um, but uh, I can't find anything to support that in any of the documentation. Maybe because the rumor is wrong, or maybe because it was covered up very effectively. Uh, I couldn't tell you. Uh, uh, yes. Maybe McDonald was into the gym. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at that time, McDonald was, was always into the gym. It was a, um, and, and I would tell you, McGee wasn't. It was always whiskey and water uh, for, for, for them. Um, McGee wasn't. McGee had, had uh, given up the demon drink uh, and had done for several months before he was uh, assassinated. Yeah. But, uh, yes? David, what happened to the alleged revolver that... Oh, what a story that is. <laughs> another hour? Yeah, uh, that, that wine is looking better and better. Uh, um, it, it was, uh, I sketch it out, it was, uh, it went 
to one of the policemen, I think it might have been O'Neill's family, or the O'Gara family, I don't remember which, but one of the, it was either the O'Gara or the O'Neill family. It was passed down in their family. And then it was brought into the uh, Canadian Museum of Civilization. Um, and uh, the, now Mark, you, Mark you, you will probably have a better sense of the details of this, but it was borrowed by someone in the, uh, a woman I believe it was, who worked at the museum. She borrowed it and took it home for a while to show people, uh, borrowed in inverted commas, I so she was going to give it back. And her house burnt down and it was assumed that the gun had been lost, but she'd returned it before, uh, I don't know, given it to somebody else, but that's right. And it was in a toolbox. There was, there's a where's the gun? When the, when the firearms registry came out, 54877, I think, um, it had been registered. And there was a guy in Owen's Sound. I phoned him up actually, because he was, he was selling it. Mark can take up, Mark O'Neill can take up the story. He was selling it and he said, now anyone who's got the gun, of course, is going to argue that it was Whelan who shot McGee and this was the gun that killed McGee because it raises the value of it, you know. <laughs> and, and he was saying, no, this is like, this is like the gun, this is like John Wilkes Booth's gun, you know. This should be worth millions. Well, he, did, well, he didn't get, and his idea was he was going to sell the gun and use the money to, to, uh, to support his children going to the university. And, uh, uh, and in the end, uh, it was sold to the Canadian Museum of History. And they are not going to let anyone borrow it and put it in their house for a while. Yes, please. We purchased an auction in 2005, $105,000. And so if you come to the new painting, it's too long to open it for a person. There's a beautiful section where the gun is on display. As it is, the portrait that was painted for me by Mr. Myers was lent to the museum by the new great grandson, Harrison King. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be back to be in Ottawa tomorrow and we'll be in Montreal to impact the facility on Saturday speaking uh, about the So if you haven't been, come and see it because the portrait is very seldom been publicly displayed. It raises to your book. But it's yeah. a beautiful portrait of the of course, you never see it. And uh, it's wonderful to have the portrait reunited with the revolver. Yes. It's, it's, it's yeah. not a revolver there as well. But you can do the revolver. Ambassador Kelly said, mentioned at the beginning of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography and, uh, and, and how you can get in there. Uh, first of all, I regret to tell you that you have to be dead to get into the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. That's a necessary but not a sufficient condition of entry. Uh, but uh, but uh, the Dictionary of Canadian Biography is doing uh, great things around this and actually has a special project um, on the Fenians and there's a very good biography, it was a capsule biography of Darcy McGee written by Robin Burns many years ago based on his excellent PhD thesis. Um, so keep, when you, uh, keep the Dictionary of Canadian Biography in your dreams please and feel free to consult it as much as possible. It's a great institution. That's my plug. Alright. No talk is, is complete without a commercial. So thank you very much indeed for your excellent questions. Thank you very much indeed, David. Thank you for a, a really fascinating, uh, a fascinating story and the scholarship and the knowledge that you bring to it and, and really create, recreating and bring to life 
uh, the whole story and the scene in the courtroom, you almost felt like you were there. Not a comfortable feeling. No, indeed, yeah. I sense a waning interest in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, though, amongst the uh, amongst the audience. Uh, so <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, sorry, uh, you have to wait. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. It's a wonderful talk. And maybe another. Right, well, thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.